Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Call. This first call is from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. In my previous regular podcast, I had a couple of messages from Jason that I played. Turns out there were actually three. I had just flat out missed one, and it was a pretty good one after I listened to it, so I wanted to include it here. So this one is referencing back a couple of podcasts before, talking about uh, how I spoke about why I was doing solo play instead of playing in a group. Hey, Jason here. The other Jason, the one from Nerds RPG Cast, calling in reference or response to Jason Hobbs of Random Screed's call, talking about your solo play and the fact that bandits fought to the last man. It's interesting. So I, you know, even in regular play with a game master and a number of players, we, we've seen this thing where you roll morale and the enemy decides to stay and fight even when it doesn't make sense. And so that brings up the question, well, do you fudge the dice? Because to have them, ret- if you do decide to roll the dice, and then you have them run anyway, at that point you're fudging the dice. So, y- you know, you have to decide how procedural you want to play it. I think with solo game, you know, so to back up to the regular game where you have, you know, multiple people in the game, I, I think it would be totally acceptable not to roll the dice and have the bandits run away. But in a solo game, I think we're much more likely to do the procedural thing and roll those dice and to follow what the dice say. So we're not, we don't feel we're unduly influencing the story, right? So I would have done it the same way you did it. And honestly, in a real game, a real game, the solo games are real games. In a regular game with multiple players, I, you know, I've been in plenty of games where morale's been rolled and People, have, you know, enemy NPCs have fought to the death because the dice have said they're going to do this. And that's probably because I play with a group that tends, the groups I play in tend to look down on fudging dice and, and not following those die results. But I'm, but I've also been in games where the GM has said, well, I'm not going to roll. It doesn't make sense. They're going to run off. Right. And, and I've even played with the, with GMs that have done one or the other in different games, right? So I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here, but I do think we're probably more likely to fall back on the dice and depend on the dice in a solo game than not. And I thought that was an interesting thing and wanted to share it. Talk to you later. Thank you, Jason. And I'm sorry I missed this call the first time around. I I, I agree. I think the dice are more of an arbitrator in solo play simply because that's the only randomizer second mind or what what have you that is in the game when you're playing a solo game because your own mind is going to be tend to be on one track and and you can play different ways and and see things from different perspectives i mean it's something that people have been doing for a long time in the wargaming world when they play a game solo that does it before the advent of things like bots that allow the game to have kind of a mind of its own where you're playing both sides and you're trying to compartmentalize knowledge, but it's not easy. And of course, you know, if you develop 
you know, an attachment to PCs or characters or something, there's always that idea that, well, we're going to make decisions that make it more likely they continue to survive and continue on and be successful. So that's why the dice are very important. That being said, if I had thought that there was, you know, it made more sense to have some of the bandits retreat earlier than they did or whatever, I probably would have gone ahead and done it if it was if it was just simply an obvious thing. The reason why I left it to the dice was because, to me, it wasn't that obvious. There were times where you, I looked at the different factors that work into, you know, are, when you're going to roll the dice and affect it negatively and positively, that it really didn't make sense for them to, to even be checking morale because in that particular section of the battle, it was going, if not well, then at least pretty even. So the chance for victory was either theirs for the taking or at least up in the air versus just being completely against you. And then when it got to where it was more negative, leaning more the way of the nomads, that was when a lot of the morale rolls kicked in and they they started they succeeded a lot of the time. And then when they failed, they faced the consequences because when you run away from an enemy you're fighting, he gets some shots in. But I I do agree that with solo play, you do have to have that factor that dice provide that give you the randomization and the chance to react creatively to what's going on in the world when you're playing both the, both the PCs and the world. So I thought that was a great point, and I appreciate the call. Hey, Jason here. I really enjoyed the last podcast. I do think it's totally appropriate for them to take those Cubs you know, back with them and train them up. I think that's a, something we would have definitely done back in the day and the rules support it. So I think you should do it a hundred percent. I'm like, I'm really enjoying the, the solo game. Keep up the great work and we'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you for that, Jason. Yeah. When I read the, the entry on wolves and it talked about wolf cubs and people having the opportunity to take them and train them, it just seemed that like that would be something that Edgar would want the way I have a conception of what Edgar is, you know, partly as a druid and partly as just what his personality is and, and the, and the path he was on before he joined the party. And I also thought that, uh, Gus seeing himself as, as kind of a le- the leader of the party, the one that put the party together and wanting to show respect for fellow party members and also Bernie and kind of what he believes that they would support that kind of idea. So it would it would be something that they would want to do, if not for their own self-interest and what they could do with the Cubs, you know, having them as part of the, a, you know, a guard dog situation or something like that, training them up. That would be something that Edgar would want, even if it would be a situation where he would just kind of nurture them and then release them into the wild. So I'm not sure which direction that's actually going to take at the moment. It's something I'm going to have to figure out I may have to figure out some dice way to figure it out, or I may just have it, you know, uh, you know, a faux conversation in my head between party members and see how that goes. It, I, that's something I'm interested in seeing how it goes as much from how I adjudicate it as what effect it may have you know, on the future of the campaign. So thank you again for the call. Hey, Pink Phantom, Spencer here. 
I just calling to say that I've really been enjoying what you've been doing with RPG a day month. And in your response to Jason Hobbs's call, you make it sound deceptively simple what you're doing. But, um, well, I have to say I've been pretty impressed by it. Also, I thought it was interesting what you were saying about the game that Matt Coville is developing, uh, the name of which escapes me, but I think that's a great idea, having the name describe the kind of game that it is. And uh, I know that there's been some talk around whether games should include that whole description of what is an RPG, you know, should a game devote time to trying to explain that? Wouldn't it be better if the game used that space to describe what kind of game it was rather than trying to define this sort of nebulous medium? I also wanted to say thank you for giving a shout out to my podcast and thanks again for what you're doing with RPG A Day Month. I very much look forward to listening to it in its entirety at the end of the month. Cheers. Thank you for the call and the kind words, Spencer. Uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun using the RPG A Day keywords to kind of contribute to the solo campaign. It's really worked, worked out nicely. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I guess maybe I did make it sound a little simpler than than what it actually is i know i find myself sometimes just with the logistics and the information getting everything organized it's a little different just me talking into the mic it's a little easier except when i start going and have to go back and kind of kind of redo that part but it's a lot of fun and i guess probably because of that i don't see it as much as work as maybe it probably actually is or at least would seem to other people. And as far as what you were saying about the new the new uh, RPG that Matt Colville and his team over at MCDM are developing, yeah, I do, I do like that idea, especially in the design phase of having the name be what you're going for because it, it lets, you, lets you have that focus. And it would be useful to have it be, if not the name, then you know, a, a little subtitle beneath the name when you publish an RPG, exactly what it is and what it's about. I know that definitions can be tough, and we've seen that with the RPG industry, and I've seen that in the wargaming industry, trying to de- de- explain what an RPG is, define what an RPG is, define what a war game is. It creates a lot of rancor sometimes that, you know, this is included, this is not included, this is what's a proper RPG, this is not what's a proper RPG. And sometimes in the in the conversations I see taking place various places online, I get a little miffed with how restrictive some people have their argument of what is proper a proper RPG or what is the correct D and D is, you know, kind of the I guess the big thing, you know, the edition wars and all that. And it's it's something that I think it kind of relates to something that Jason Hobbs was ta- has been talked about sometimes on Random Screed and Runeslinger, Anthony, on the Casting Shadows podcast, have talked about in terms of levels and layers of playing RPGs and kind of describing what those different ways and different level 
levels of play, layers of play are within playing an RPG and how they affect what a game is and and how how it how do you interact with those different ways of different ways, different styles, different overviews of the game. How do you play that? And I think that's something that's missing. They talk about that something that's missing in the RPG world, and I think it is. And I think part of it is because things like Edition Wars or D&D style games versus indie games, those kind of conflicts get into it. You start describing things that way. You know, OSR. What is the OSR? Is the OSR dead? Is the OSR good? Or is the OSR toxic? And we get into those kind of things. And and the RPG world kind of gets tied up in that. And so it doesn't do always do a good job of explaining how to play a specific game and what what is involved in a specific game without trying to redefine what an RPG overall is or define what an RPG overall is. And it's something I've, I've seen in the board game industry evolve when I used to listen to a lot of those kind of podcasts where they used to describe when the types of board games that are beyond just the, the generic family board games, the brand names that we all know, that are a little more complex, a little more strategy, a lot of people call them strategy games. When they started building back up again, rising back up again, and having kind of their own renaissance in the late 90s, early 2000s, and onward, uh, you know, they would, a lot of times the styles would be defining them. They were usually fell into a category of German games and later Euros and Ameritrash style games. And usually they fit into those two categories. And then later on, it evolved where it was more about, they were described by their mechanics. It was area control or it was action selection. Uh, It was a Rondale game. It was an auction style game. And so they started describing their games that way. And they developed kind of their own vocabulary for that once you got into that world, it would kind of, you could kind of tell just from that lexicon, a few key words, you would know what they were talking about. And even within the games, they would kind of explain what that word means for somebody that was coming in new. So that you had a way to, just a shorthand, to let people who played those game, played those kind of board games know whether a game like that is for them or not. And that's really what the labels are good for. It's for, this is the type of game you would like to play because you play this other game that's a similar style or similar mechanic or similar theme. And that's the other thing they use. They they have they talk about the theme of the game. So the theme of the game and the mechanics of the game, and together that lets you know what the game is about. And I think that's something that RPGs are starting to do, but there's still, you know, that kind of, idea in the greater consciousness of people who come in to play RPG equals D&D. And I know for people who create games that are not much like D&D and maybe don't even care for D&D, or especially the company that's currently making D&D, they, you know, they kind of, when somebody gets that idea, because now they're trying to explain that their game is not that, and they have their own kind of negative feelings about that that maybe interfere with that explanation. But I'm rambling on. 
But thank you for the call. I think that's a great thought about the process of, you know, how to title a game, how to develop a game, how to to define what what a specific game is without trying to go into the whole. And here is what an RPG is that so many games seem to fall into. So thanks again for the call, Spencer. I really appreciate it. I just want to spend a few minutes talking about the idea of tiers of play in D&D and, and I guess in RPGs in general and what it means to a campaign when you change tiers and how does that affect the campaign. And what kicked this off is that the, at the beginning of the episodes of the Basilisk Kills Breakdown, the, the uh, creator of that campaign that serves as the, the GM uh, introduces the podcast as a mid-level a mid-level adventure a mid-level campaign and looking at the blog that supports that podcast they list the various characters that the that the players play and the main characters that each of them have is six level and it struck me odd as odd that that would be mid-level just that was my natural reaction and as I kind of looked into it and 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 thought about it I realized that that was kind of a more modern mindset, maybe that mid level, that six level, is not mid level. That was that was my idea, because uh, third and fifth edition D and D went to twentieth level, fourth edition went to thirtieth level. If you go back to BX, those books went back to thirty sixth level, and AD and D really didn't have a level cap on anything. You could just keep going. It's just at some point there were limited benefits in terms of hit points and things that you got that were in terms of the mechanics. You get these things when you when you progress beyond this point. But there was there was sort but it and everything was sort of divided into either intentionally or just the way they were organized into kind of tiers of play. BX had five different box set and each each box set talked about a different set of levels. You had basic expert, companion, master, and immortal. In terms of 4E, it explicitly divided the 30 levels into three tiers of play. The first 10 were heroic, the second 10 were paragon, and the third 10 were epic. Third edition, I don't believe, I don't, and I don't have as much information, and I haven't done as much looking into third edition as some of these others. It didn't have an explicit, I don't believe it had an explicit division it went 1 through 20, and then they later added a book that was considered epic-level D&D, which a lot of the blogs and, and forums that I read, a lot of people didn't ever seem to really use that much because they made a pull from here and there. And 5th edition divides it into four tiers in the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, levels 1 to 4, local heroes, 5 to 10, heroes of the realm, 11 to 17, Masters of the Realm, and 17 to 20, Masters of the World. And in basic D&D, I mean in AD&D, it really di didn't divide it so much, but there was a point where each character suddenly began, began to reach what was called name level and would be, would be eligible to begin domain level play, building a stronghold, building a wizard tower, uh, building a temple, creating a thieves guild, things of that nature, where they're becoming involved in the world on a bigger case. And that was usually levels 8 to 11, depending on the character class, most of them being at 9. 
So in that circumstance, mid-level, that would six level would fit as mid-level because you're getting toward that domain level play. But one of the things about the basketball skills breakdown is they are engaging in that domain level play to an extent now. They're carving out a stronghold in the wilderness as part of their play. It's a big part of what they do and the logistics of doing that and moving things around and creating alliances that can, they can that can support them and they can support is a big part of what they're doing in that podcast. So that got me to thinking about how much would these levels of play, and I don't know, having not experienced a lot of them, uh, how much difference is there between these levels of play, and does that turn people off? When you get to a certain level, and the style of the campaign changes, maybe because the characters are so powerful, or just because of the types of, of challenges that they need to face in order to face any kind of a challenge, you know, we're, we're too powerful for dungeon crawling now. We have to be, we have to go to building a kingdom or being involved in the situations that would put us in the middle of a mass battle or in confronting princes and kings and emperors. Or we're going to have to start plane hopping where we're dealing with demons and gods on a regular basis. And so we're having to, to, to make alliances and fight that level of creature in order to have a challenge or to have anything resembling that would, that would be worth doing other than you show up, you wipe everybody out and you know, you win. There you go. Win button, push that win button. Is there a point in a campaign where you just feel like we need to start over? We need to get back to the beginning. We need to get back to basics. I prefer playing first three levels. I prefer to, be playing first five levels. You see a lot on some of the internet interactions on social media and sometimes in, in forums and things like that where people do express that, where after a while in a campaign, they've reached a, a level where what their characters are having to do to challenge them to be challenged is not what they want to do in a game. So how does that how does that play out? Do you try to set up the campaign so that you continue doing mostly the same things just with stronger monsters? Or do you retire those characters and go back to first level, or maybe not first level, maybe second or third level, if you want to start off a little stronger than than just being barely above regular folks? So those were my thoughts on that. What is it about what, what do you consider a mid-level campaign, regardless of the system you're playing? And maybe how does, how does that fit within the system? What type of play do you think is mid-level play? Is exploration and dungeon delving, is that always basic level? And then when you start getting into the domain level stuff or you start getting in, involved in the, mechani- the machinations of higher powers, so to speak, on different planes of existence, is that when the when the thing when the theme and the, the structure of the campaign changes. And does that appeal to you? Does do you like the idea of we're doing things one way and we're going along and things are going well and we're progressing and now we're going to have to change up and go in a different direction. Not just there are different challenges that we have to face, 
but it's entirely different style of play. And would that incentivize you to start over from the beginning? And is that why a lot of campaigns seem to peter out and fall apart? Uh, On the Red Dice Diaries, John Allen Large just put out an episode called Enthusiasm of a Dwindling Enthusiasm Dwindling for a Campaign that talks about why do campaigns flag and falter. Could this be part of the reason? And now, more from my solo AD&D RPG campaign, Tales of the Dragon Slayers. So now we have another random encounter. And it's interesting, when I was trying to figure out how this world was going to operate in the early going of this campaign, I said that the dragon would have scared almost everything off with its rampage, and it would take so long before creatures started moving back in, and so long before intelligent creatures started moving around. And is you know, just the, the chance of the dice have kind of gone that way. When I was saying, when the time that I established that there really wouldn't be anything for the characters to run into, I was still rolling dice because there was a slight chance they'd run into something and I was getting no random encounters. And now as things have opened up and they've gotten to the point where pretty much anything is possible out there in the world, they're rolling random encounters more often. That's an interesting aspect that the dice are, and my ideas and the dice are actually dovetailing versus what I'm saying and what the dice are coming up with. So that's something interesting I just thought I'd mention. But getting on with this with this random encounter, uh, the random encounter is hobgoblins. And so we're going to see what exactly we're dealing with here. We're going to roll some dice. So hobgoblins can be anywhere from 20 to 200. So I'm going to roll a d10 and multiply that number by 20. I got a 3, so that's going to be 60 hobgoblins. And according to the Monster Manual entry, uh, 60 hobgoblins will have one leader and two assistants for every 20 hobgoblins. So that's three leaders and six assistants. Uh, the next thing we need to do is roll to see, are they in lair? Only a 25% chance. And with a three, they are in lair. So the party has run across a layer of hobgoblins. Now, this is interesting because this is kind of the same path the party has been traveling back and forth shuttling treasure through several times. So this means the hobgoblins have moved in just recently, which in that aspect, only having 60 out of a potential 200 really makes sense because it's probably a small group of hobgoblins moving back into the area and they have just now run across some sort of, well, let's see where they are because in the entry it says it could be 80% chance that there will be an underground lair. So that would be in some sort of Cave cave entrance would be where they'd be running across versus above ground. So we'll roll the dice here, and thirty one percent. So they are it's an underground layer. So they've taken taken up residence some kind of large cave cave area, fairly nearby the trail that the party is on. Otherwise, they wouldn't have encountered them. So now the next thing we need to do is figure out sort of where they are in position. Are is the cave kind of far back? So there's some distance between them. Uh, are they nearby? Are do they have some guards nearby on the road? Or uh, do they have some kind of uh, raiding party that the that the uh, party that our party has run into? So I'm just going to roll a d6 
And uh, you know what? I'm going to let this also, I'm going to let this be the surprise rolls. Use the surprise rolls for this. So normally it's a, it's a one or two on a D6 is surprise. So if the goblins surprise the party, I'm going to say that, yes, the party has run across the area of their lair, but they've actually run up on a raiding party that is returning to the cave, and so it's kind of in their path. Uh, anything other than that, they're kind of at a distance from the lair. And let's say on a three to four, there may be some some sort of sentries nearby the road, but there's nothing immediately in the party's way. So the party would still have the option in that circumstance of trying to get away, of parlaying, of combat, or whatever, whatever could result from that. On the party's side, if they surprise the goblins, then they are definitely at a distance. But because Sven, because of the effects of the wish on bringing Sven back, that creatures kind of sense him when in the random encounter situations, we're going to reduce the party's opportunity to surprise them to, say, one out of two. All right, so rolling, did the party surprise the goblins? On a three, they did not. Did the goblins surprise the party? On a five, they did not. So we have a circumstance where there's a cave some distance off, off the trail, but still within sight where the party can see the hobgoblins and the, and I think I said goblins before, it is hobgoblins. The party can see the hobgoblins and the hobgoblins can see the party, but there's still some distance between them. And since they are in lair, these hobgoblins, in addition to the 60 hobgoblins and the leaders and assistants, uh, they're going to have a chief with six bodyguards that are basically the same as the leaders, as well as they'll have females, they'll have young, and they will have uh, some guards as guards, some carnivorous apes, two to 12 carnivorous apes. So let's get another D6 here. A couple of D6s rolling. And we're going to roll up eight, eight carnivorous apes. So 60 goblins, eight carnivorous apes, and assorted, essentially, family members, females and young. So now we'll just have to see what happens with the goblins and the party. And that means going to the old encounter reaction table. So we're rolling a percent dice. And with a 25, and Sir Gus is leading the way with his 30% reaction adjustment, will give us a 55. That gives us neutral, uninterested, uncertain. So these hobgoblins are not looking to really come after the party. They're not looking to start anything or antagonize them. They're just being essentially wary. Before the party can get to the keep, they have another random encounter in the pre-dawn hours. This one is lion. There are three types of lion listed in the monster manual. One is your regular lions, which it mentions thriving from desert to jungle, swamp to savanna. Uh, the mountain lion, which is forest deserts as well as mountains. And the spotted lion, which is a also known as cave lions, they are larger spotted specimens. They roam the plains of the Pleistocene epoch. So, given the terrain, 
I'm going to say they're more likely to run into mountain lions than the other two types. So I'm going to roll. You know what? Let's break out the old D12 here. D12 doesn't always get a lot of love. We're going to say on a 1 or 2, it's regular lions. On a 11 or 12, it's spotted lions. And anything in between will be mountain lion. And on a 10, it's, a mount it's mountain lions. So they will encounter from 1 to 2. So let's get the old D4 here. On a 1 or a 2, it's 1. On a 3 or 4, it's 2. And it's a 3, so there are 2 mountain lions. These will be armor class 6. They have 3 plus 1 hit dice. So rolling up some hit points for these guys. They have, a, I rolled a 4, a 1, and a 1. So they're going to have a total of 7 hit points. Since this is taking place in the pre-dawn hours, uh, we had said that Bernie, it'll be one of the last two watches that will encounter these lions. Uh, we had previously established, I believe, that Sir Gus took the first watch so that he, would, he wouldn't be getting in and out, trying to get in and out of his armor in the middle of the night and just to get out of it again to, to get some more rest. So he took the first watch, and that for spell recovery purposes, Bernie wanted to get continuous sleep. So he would, he would usually be on the last watch. Since we have the whole party here, there's going to be two on each watch. Uh, since Sven has the same kind of, he's kind of the other heavy, heavy armored hitter, like Sir Gus is, put him on the last watch with Bernie. We'll say that Cudgel and Harl were on the watch after Sir Gus, and that uh, Edgar and Quinn would be on the watch, the third watch, before Bernie and Sven. So, 50-50, break out the D4. On a 1 or 2, the mountain lions come along when Edgar and Quinn are on watch. And on a 3 or 4, it will be with Bernie and Sven. And on a 2, it will be with Edgar and Quinn. So now we need to roll for surprise. Uh, mountain lions can only be surprised on a 1. And we're going to say that since, again... Uh, Sven has that little curse going for him that monsters can pick him up easier. That There's no chance of them surprising the mountain lions. But the mountain lions can still surprise the party on a one or a two. And on a two, they have achieved surprise. So let's roll the other die to see how many surprise segments they get, if any. It's also a two, so they get no surprise segments. So now... We will roll for initiative. So the mountain lions roll a five. The party rolls a two. So the mountain lions attack essentially out of the early morning, just pre-dawn time. And since the party is surprised, even though there's not going to be any surprise rounds, we're going to say that it will be random who they will get to attack because there will be zero chance of reaction by Edgar and Quinn. And so they could randomly attack a sleeping party member. There are 12 party, 11 party members. Sir Gus, Edgar, Cudgel, Bernie, Sven, Harl, Quinn, and the four valets. So I'm going to roll a d12, ignoring results of a 12. And on a roll of a 6, 
that's going to be Arl. So there, let's see, the other mountain lion will attack. On a five, they attack Sven. So, according to the DM's manual, DM's guide, magically asleep held or paralyzed opponents, it's an automatic hit. It doesn't mention just regular sleep. So I'm going to go up one category to opponent stunned, held by both legs, slowed, partially bound, etc., and give the mountain lions a plus four. Since both of these party members are asleep, they're not wearing any armor, and the mountain lions will be able to hit on a six or better, which means with a plus four bonus, they only need a two. So we're going to roll the attack on Quinn, and they rolled exactly a two. And their attacks are 1d3, 1d3, 1d6. So we'll have triple d6s and then roll a full d6. So we roll a six, roll a four, and we roll a three. The six and the four will be half, so that will be three, two, and three. That is a total of eight hit points of damage on Quinn. And Quinn is at a minus four now. Now for the attack on Arl. With a 10, that easily hits. A two, so that's one point of damage. A one, so that's one point of damage. And a five, so that's a total of seven points of damage. That puts Harl at a minus five because he only had two hit points. Now it's the party's turn. The two awake members will act. Edgar and Cudgel. The others will be have been awakened by the the attacks. So they will not get in action this turn. So first we will go with Edgar. He has uh, no two hit bonus on with his melee weapon, which is a Lucerne hammer. Uh, he, he will get a plus one on damage if he hits. He is going to need to roll a 14 to hit. And he rolls a 15. So it does uh, two to eight points of damage plus one. That's a four. And that's a three plus one is eight. So he kills. So he, he walks up and just crushes the skull in of the mountain lion that attacked Harl. Now, Cudgel, he needs a 15 or better to hit. He has no bonuses, and he rolls a 3, so he misses. So we move on to round 2. Remaining Mountain Lion rolls a 1 on initiative. The party rolls a 2, so just good enough to go first. So Cudgel takes another strike and misses again with a 2. Edgar comes over and tries to attack and hits with an 18. He's going to roll a 3. And a 1 plus 1 is 5. So the mountain lion is still up. The others having been awakened, Sir Gus has grabbed his long sword and comes over and attacks. He needs a 14 to hit. He has plus 4 to hit, so he needs a 10 or better. And with a 19, and with the bonus damage he gets, he has killed the mountain lion. So they have to move quickly to 
treat the wounds of their injured comrades who are essentially at death's door negative hit points. With that additional round of combat, Quinn will have slipped to minus five, Harl to minus six. Uh, Sir Gus can lay on hands on Harl, which will bring back two hit points, bring him to minus four. And then Sir Gus will essentially forego any experience for the killing the mountain lions by resorting to his cleric abilities and casting a cure light wound spell on Quinn. And he gets exactly five hit points, which brings him up to zero. And that is the state the party finds themselves in as they begin a new day. They're going to have to carefully load them onto the wagons as they finish their move to the keep. The opening music of this podcast is Strength of the Titans, and the closing music is Late Night Radio, both by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thank you for listening to Phantom Thoughts. I would love to hear your feedback. You don't have to be part of the show. If you want to contact me and let me know, hey, these are for your eyes only. I just wanted to give you thoughts, ideas, response, and it's really for your eyes or ears only. That's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you either way. So just let me know when you contact me. Just I don't want to be part of the show. There are lots of different ways you can contact me. You can send me an email at phantomthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. And that can be a regular email or you can attach an audio file to it. You can use the message button on my podcast site on podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me via my Google voice number, 864-209-1441. You can contact me via SpeakPipe at www.speakpipe.com slash phantom thoughts. You can contact me on Discord, The Pink Phantom. All this contact information is listed in the show notes of every episode. And thank you for those who call in. Thank you for those who don't call in. I appreciate you listening and hope you'll listen again next time. Until then, I hope you have a great day.